You could eat the most perfect, locally grown, nutrient-dense, properly prepared whole foods lunch. And if there's anything going wrong in your digestive process, which as we already talked about is often the case. And honestly, you know, even as I said, in the absence of digestive symptoms, often people's digestive processes are really subpar. And so this can lead to a sequence of events that allows that food to get into the bloodstream at an improperly digested place, right? Like it doesn't look to the body like food. Like if you had perfect broccoli at lunch, And for example, maybe you're not secreting enough enzymes, that broccoli, when it gets into the bloodstream, isn't just a sort of nutrient form. It's, it's actually going to be irritating and it's going to engage the immune system, even though it's totally innocuous. So I think the first mistake that people get is it's just the usual suspects. The second mistake is that, you know, they can do this without testing. So I do think food sensitivity testing is really, really important. Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. I have the unique opportunity to be a part of a fantastic group called the Mindshare Mastermind which is actually a group of very forward-thinking health entrepreneurs and health, you know, I hate to say it, but truthfully so, influencers in the health arena, many, many people that you probably watch and pay attention to on social media. And my next guest is somebody I met through this organization, Margaret Floyd Berry. She's a functional nutritionist, writer, and real food advocate who's been on the pursuit of the most nutritious and delicious way of eating for the better part of her adult life. Having seen family members really suffer the devastating effects of chronic illness from an early age, Margaret really had this long desire to help others find a way back to optimal health. Through years of experience working with the most complex client cases, including reversing her own autoimmune condition, Margaret has established a powerful system for restoring health by addressing the root cause. Today, Margaret runs Eat Naked Kitchen, a thriving private practice that supports clients throughout North America and Europe helping them really achieve true health and vitality through therapeutic and diet lifestyle changes. She also has a practitioner-centered training program called Restorative Wellness Solutions, where she helps qualified uh, nutrition and health professionals learn functional nutrition. Let's give a warm welcome to Margaret Floyd Berry. And today, we're really going to talk about the intersection of food sensitivities, gut health, and particularly Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So, Welcome to This Functional Life, Margaret Floyd Berry. Oh, well, I'm so excited to have you, Margaret, on our show. And I want to really talk about, I want you to share your history because I, you know, the unfortunate truth is that I think everybody that comes to functional medicine, for the most part, has some history past that kind of drug them through this kind of mire of medical, you know, activities. And unfortunately, we have a story to tell. And I want you to tell yours. Well, my story, there's sort of two main themes to it. And the first one was that when I was in my early 20s, 
I had struggled with really severe eczema for about 10 years. And anyone who has struggled with eczema, it is like the most maddening thing. Because not only does it look bad, but it just makes you insane with the itch, right? Like it's just this like compulsion all the time. And I had it like everywhere. I had it in my, I mean, I literally, I had it everywhere. Arms, legs, parts you don't want to know about, face. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And the way that it had been managed was through just increasing doses of, you know, cortisone cream, basically. And I remember there was a day, I didn't know anything about functional health. And there was a day where a friend of, or the doctor wanted to prescribe a higher dose and I had it on my eyelids. And he was like, oh yeah, just use it on your eyelids. And there's just this little part of me that was like, sure. Like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. It was going to burn my eyelids off or something. But there was just a voice inside me that was like, this this isn't working anymore. Like, this is now doesn't feel right. And I need to find another way. And a friend of mine um, had done some work in sort of functional health. And um, and she was like, you know, have you ever heard of a naturopath? I was like, no. (laughs) And so she sent me to her naturopath. And I remember going into that session laughing and thinking, oh, she's going to take out all my favorite food groups, you know, wine and cheese and chocolate. And, you know, if only it had stopped there, right? The, the changes were dramatic. And she put me on all these supplements, did all this testing. And I can remember going home from her office that first day and actually just bursting into tears because one thing she didn't tell me or she might have told me and it just didn't register is that this wasn't like forever. Like I thought this was the rest of my life. I mean, the list of foods I couldn't eat was out of this world. It was just a temporary thing. But let me tell you what, in three weeks, that eczema was gone and it has been over 20 years since and it's never come back. And that was a really powerful moment for me where it was like, wait a second, what I eat has to do with my skin. Like I could understand it hurting like my stomach, but something as to me removed from my digestion and my food is my skin. It was a really profound moment. Now it took me a while to actually jump into the field um, and actually start doing this work professionally. But the other piece that was happening alongside this is that my mother had um, very, very severe autoimmune disease. She'd been diagnosed when I was in my teens and um, combination of lupus, rheumatoid arthritis. I actually now think as well, knowing what I know, she also had Hashimoto's, but I think given everything else that was going on, I think that was sort of the least of her priorities or worries. And it was awful. It was just this process of like one step forward, five steps back. You know, she would have whatever procedure she would have, you know, all the side effects of this concoction of drugs that were keeping her going. I remember one time she got a hangnail and the immune suppressants she were on, was on were so powerful. That hangnail turned into an infection that went all the way up her arm. And she was in the hospital for two months with tr- these like IV antibiotics, trying to manage an infection from a hangnail. So it's like the very drugs that were managing this autoimmune disease, not all that well, were just causing so many symptoms. And ultimately, about 20 years in, she lost her life to side effects from the very medications that were keeping her alive. And so witnessing this, I was just like, there's just got to be a different way, you know? And I made the decision to start doing this work. When I was in my early 30s, I made a big career change. And 
you know, she was still alive for the first few years of my, my shift, but I was, I was still learning. I didn't know nearly as much as I do now, but I made it my absolute mission to make sure just really not on my watch. Like if anybody was in that kind of situation, I wanted to be able to help them turn it around naturally. Of course, at the time I had no idea that eczema also has autoimmune origins. And it wasn't until I was in my, well, I was in my late thirties, I was pregnant with my second daughter, Sasha was in my early forties, pregnant with my second daughter, Sasha, and I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's myself. So um, I've had, and I've used all the tools I use with my clients on myself and have been able to bring it into remission really, really quickly and keep it there. So this has been like my, my pet project is just from watching that experience with my mom, having that profound experience myself healing that eczema and then being able to keep my own Hashimoto's completely under control just with dietary and natural strategies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's traumatic to grow up in an environment to have a parent that is basically chronically ill with, you know, horrible debilitating disease like autoimmune conditions, which affects over 50 million Americans. And it's, they're the leading cause of dysfunction and chronic illness and early death in women in particular under 50. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's an epidemic that gets completely missed in the world. And, you know, it's unfortunate that most of us come to functional medicine, like I said, through that lens, very similar to you. I, I had a completely different career and it was the diagnosis of colitis. And when I asked about food, they laughed at me and said, food had nothing to do with your autoimmune digestive disorder. And I was like, that's amazing. Cause when I don't eat, it starts to get better. (laughs) Okay. But I can't starve myself. So. You know, it's um, that gut brain connection and that gut immune connection is so clear in the literature, but so missing in medicine. So tell me, I know that you like to really focus on sort of gut health and autoimmunity. Let's walk through that a little bit. You know, your kind of perspective and what do we have to think about when we're looking at that digestive health? A hundred percent. Well, just to make sure, I'm sure your audience is, is, is aware of this, but just to make sure we're all 100% on the same page in terms of what autoimmunity is, is basically, you know, if your immune system has, and this is dramatic overgeneralization, but the immune system has basically two key functions, right? One is to protect us from pathogenic invaders, and the other is housekeeping, sort of internal housekeeping. And as part of these jobs, it has this really important mechanism to be able to distinguish between self and other, and then when it comes to other, between friend and foe. And so what happens is that mechanism for distinguishing self and other, friend and foe, goes awry. And it starts mistaking self, definitely friend, (laughs) for enemy other. It just starts attacking self. And there's a lot of different reasons for this. You know, one of the one of the analogies I like to give clients is that, you know, think of us if we're ever, if you're tired and you haven't been getting good sleep and your job is really demanding, maybe there's lots of family stuff going on, and it's just like you are not getting a break. That keeps going on for a while, you start to make bad decisions, right? Like it's just, you know, we're overtired, we're overexerted, we're never getting a minute to ourselves, we start to make bad decisions kind of the same thing with the immune system, right? When the immune system is being chronically engaged and never being given a break, and there's lots of different mechanisms for this, you know, molecular mimicry and the bystander effect and, uh, you know, lots of different ways that this happens. But in essence, what's happening is that immune system is being engaged, not being given a break, and it's starting to make bad decisions. 
And so the reason why the gut is so important in all of this is that the vast majority of your immune system lives in and around the digestive tract. So any kind of dysfunction that's happening in that digestive process, any foods that you're eating that are triggering an inflammatory process, which is engaging the immune system, are all of that is necessarily going to engage the immune system. And this can be, I mean, you're talking about colitis, so clearly some overt and major digestive symptoms. But even if the target of the autoimmune attack is not specifically the digestive system, and even if an individual doesn't have any kind of digestive symptoms overtly that they're aware of, any kind of dysfunction is going to be really really fatiguing and engage over engaging that immune system. And that really is um, a key piece of the puzzle. You know, as, as functional practitioners, our job is, you know, versus the conventional approach, which is let's shut down this overactive immune system. Um, and let's give you a bunch of anti-inflammatories, which, you know, symptomatically can be helpful. And in certain cases is totally appropriate. It's not getting to the root of the problem though, right? Like it's not saying, well, why is the immune system making these mistakes in judgment, basically? And so as functional practitioners, our approach is like, well, let's identify what on earth is causing the immune system to misfire. And so while it might not be just the digestive system and the diet, it's an essential piece of the puzzle and always the place that I start even in the absence of digestive symptoms, because it has such a huge impact on that immune system, just because of the proximity of those two systems in, in our bodies. My current research, so I'm in the middle of literally finishing my dissertation for my PhD, but I'm literally looking at microbes making byproducts. So we're going to be crass going to the bathroom in your body metabolic byproducts and that interplay in women in particular with IBS. And, you know, it's easy to look at it when there's digestive symptoms. But, you know, people that think that that's absent, that doesn't mean that there isn't something going on in the microbiome that might be leading to your fatigue or your depression or your, you know, weight gain or inability to lose weight. Like all of those things are part and parcel for what's going on because the underlying mechanisms, there's always going to be inflammation. And if there's inflammation, there's immune engagement. And, you know, think about all the things that are driving the inflammatory process in our world. You know, I mean, so there's just the basic obvious culprits of diet, you know, these hyper processed foods, profoundly inflammatory. And then you can have foods that are totally, quote unquote, healthy. But if your body is not recognizing them as friend and is having an adverse response to those foods, then you can have perfectly healthy foods that are actually also triggering an immune response. You know, stress is its own, you know, is it is going to increase inflammatory processes, lack of sleep, certain many medications that we're taking, even, you know, things that are, you know, the, the irony of like taking an NSAID, right? Non-steroid anti-inflammatory that's supposed to bring down the inflammation, which it will in the short term, but it's going to massively um, disrupt all sorts of digestive processes and down the road actually contribute to more inflammation. So toxins in our environment, I mean, the list, I don't even like to go through it because it's long and overwhelming. But um, there's so many things in our modern world that are contributing to the ability to inf or triggering our bodies to inflame. 
And then we're, there's so many, all of the things that help our bodies resolve that inflammatory process are dramatically absent, right? Just in terms of like, even like fatty acid balance in our diets, right? We're eating so many pro-inflammatory fats and not nearly enough of the anti-inflammatory fats. Like it's actually, it's appropriate to inflame in certain situations, but of course you always want to be able to anti-inflame to actually like complete that process. And I think it's that balance where we're just so pro-inflammatory and not ever sort of completing the cycle and just the body getting stuck in these pro-inflammatory loops where it's like inflammation begets inflammation begets inflammation. It can be, it can be a bit of work to pull, to pull ourselves out of that cycle. I think, especially in America, and I speak for, you know, our media, probably the only valuable thing I can think of that's come out of the last two years is that there's a, there's a movement in the consciousness of the world that there is inflammation, that there is chronic inflammation that you may not be aware of, and that we have things like cytokines. Nobody knew what those words were before. And that the biggest risk factors you have for chronic disease and things like infection, like COVID and other things, is just this rampant chronic infection, right? And, and infl- inflammation that's going on, right? So there's always something there. What do you think people get wrong about foods, you know, and food sensitivities? Because I'm sure people, people listening probably, you know, definitely have heard food sensitivities and, and allergies, and they probably don't understand how those work. What, w- what would you like to share with people about that? What I think people get wrong about food sensitivities is that they think it's just about the food. They think that if they do, and there's different ways of approaching this, right? Some people will just do an elimination diet where they're pulling out sort of the usual suspects, the things that are typically the most inflammatory in our diet. So that's going to be things like certainly gluten, really all grains, but certainly gluten, dairy, soy, hyper-processed foods, sugar, right? Some of these, like the usual suspects, they'll pull these things out and think, ah, I'm done. That's one sort of major thing that people get wrong because our body can develop adverse immune responses to totally what should be innocuous foods. Like you could eat the most perfect, locally grown, nutrient-dense, properly prepared whole foods lunch. And if there's anything going wrong in your digestive process, which as we already talked about is often the case. And honestly, you know, even as I said, in the absence of digestive symptoms, often people's digestive processes are really subpar. And so this can lead to a sequence of events that allows that food to get into the bloodstream at an improperly digested place, right? Like it doesn't look to the body like food. Like if you had this perfect broccoli at lunch, and for example, maybe you're not secreting enough enzymes and that broccoli, when it gets into the bloodstream, isn't just a sort of nutrient form. It's it's actually going to be irritating and it's going to engage the immune system, even though it's totally innocuous. So I think the first mistake that people get is it's just the usual suspects. The second mistake is that, you know, they can do this without testing. So I do think food sensitivity testing is really, really important. And then the third piece of it is that it's not just about the foods. And I started here, but it's, you can't just remove foods from the diet. And I've had clients who've come to me and they have these food sensitivity tests they've done with other practitioners. They've pulled out all the foods. And at first they felt great right? That's really common where they felt amazing. But then slowly, inevitably, their new diet starts to not work anymore. And maybe they get more food sensitivity testing and now their list of sort of allowable foods is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's not sustainable and not fun. And 
And it's not helping. And the reason for that is that they're doing, they're just doing dealing with the food piece without dealing with the digestive piece. And you have to heal the gut at the same time as removing those food sensitivities. Otherwise, you are just getting one piece of the puzzle. And the other area, some people who just focus on gut healing, they just focus on the gut. They don't identify those inflammatory foods. And now you're in a situation where you're still, you know, an an analogy I like to use is if you have, you know, like a big old cut on your arm and you're doing all the healing things like the bombs and all the stuff, but every day, two to three times a day, you are taking your arm and like running it along a brick wall. It's like, if I ran my arm along a brick wall right now, it's like no biggie because it's nice and healed. But if, if there's a big wound there, you know, best case scenario, it's going to slow the healing process. Worst case scenario, it's going to totally make things worse. And that's a bit of an exaggerated metaphor, but that's really what those inflammatory foods are doing while you're doing the gut healing. If you haven't identified what foods are like that brick wall and remove them while you do the gut healing, then you're never going to heal completely. And it's the health and the integrity of that intestinal barrier ultimately is one of the most essential pieces of not developing these adverse reactions to what should be innocuous foods. Right. No, I agree. Uh, You know, having practiced for years, just like you have working with patients that have either seen other practitioners or even now there's the companies that offer food sensitivity testing, you know, where you could do it on yourself, but it's only one piece of the picture. We look at both always in my clinic, but I almost, if it's kind of the chicken or the egg, you look at it and go, did the food sensitivities occur? Because there were microbiome changes, there's functional digestive issues and inflammatory response, or did they create? And I think they ha- it happens in both cases. But after all these years and the microbiome research and everything else that I've done, I'm kind of on the fence where I'm like, I think it's the microbiome, the lack of digestion, the inflammation and the other stuff. And then we see this rapid uprise in food sensitivities because those food sensitivities change over time. My patients and clients repeat those tests. We need to do them every a year to two years to double check to make sure that you haven't created new ones. Because yes, romaine lettuce can be really inflammatory if it's your food that you react to. Right. I think that's the key thing that people don't realize. They're eating. I remember one of well, this happens all the time in my practice. So you know, we'll we'll do these food sensitivity tests and foods that clients are proactively seeking out, like turmeric. The number of times I've seen turmeric come up as a food sensitivity. And they're like, but, but, but my turmeric latte that I drink every day is supposed to be anti-inflammatory. And it's like, well, theoretically, yes. And in your body, right in this moment, turmeric is actually provoking a pro-inflammatory response. And so it doesn't mean you're never going to eat turmeric again, but it does mean in this moment, we need to pull it out. Yeah. And I think, I think that's so very, very, very important to distinguish. You know, and I always look back and it's something you alluded to earlier. It's we have to look at what happened to our environment, like the toxins and everything else, because in somebody whose immune system is going awry like that, ultimately we're losing tolerance to things that we've had tolerance for. And that's the biggest question. The goal is to not keep narrowing the food down to the extent that you're eating five foods, which I think is also a concern, right? Is we got to fix the underlying problem so you can broaden the diet into the most broad, you know, Obviously, we want people to eat healthy, but we don't want people just fall apart if they don't test their food sensitivities every six months. Like there's there's a whole lot that has to happen there. And it's a process that takes longer than what people think. It does. And it's just, you know, that gut healing. I think, you know, when I think about the digestive process, it's almost just like 
very profound spiritual moment. Like if you think about it, our digestion, I mean, first of all, we're basically one big complicated donut hole, right? Like the digestive system is still on the outside of our body. So like the donut hole is the digestive system. That's still the outside, right? We need to remember that. We think that once we put the food in, it's sort of like in us, but it's sort of being contained in us, but it's not actually part of us yet. And, you know, there's that saying, like, you are what you eat. But it's like, no, no, you actually, you're walking food. Like there is not a cell in your body that was not once food, right? Like every process, every system, everything that happens, your body is an incredible thing that it can take this external thing and you chew it up. And your body has all of the capacity to basically harvest nutrients from what you've eaten and absorb it, identify what is waste. So what is, you know, what needs to be eliminated and sort out all of that. And, you know, if you think about like the intestinal lining, that is one cell thick. That is just, that is not very thick. (laughs) That is one cell thick. And, you know, we have... Um, you know, things just thinking about the physiology of it, you know, these tight junctions. So these little cells kind of lined up right next to each other, all tightly squeezed together. And these mechanisms where it's like sort of selectively, like they'll open and close and like let a nutrient in and close, let a nutrient in and close. And that's when I say let a nutrient in, I mean, that's straight into the bloodstream, right? That literally now that is becoming you. It's going to shuttle around the body and do what it needs to do based on what it is and what your body needs. But essentially, that is the moment where the outside world actually integrates with you. It's quite a profound moment. And there's so many elements of that that are involved and thus can go awry, right? The more complicated a process, the more more opportunity there is for things to go a little bit sideways. So, you know, as you said, it could be a functional issue, right? Like it could literally be not able to secrete enough enzymes or being hypochlorhydric, where we're secreting insufficient hydrochloric acid in the stomach. So we're not able to break down proteins properly. We're not protecting ourselves from foodborne pathogens. We're not triggering all these other really important processes further south down the digestive line, right? Or it could be that we have really thick and sludgy bile, so we're not able to digest our fats properly, and we're not eliminating the way that we should. So it could be a functional issue. It could be dysbiosis and, you know, significant imbalances in the microbiome, which is just rampant, rampant. You know, we do a lot of stool testing and it is a rare person, if ever, where we see a truly healthy, optimized microbiome where we have this really good balance of the beneficial species, keeping those opportunistic and pathogenic species in check. Could be a straight up pathogenic exposure. You know, I think one of the things people think if they don't have you know, Giardia or something like this, that everything is fine. And there's a lot of little critters in there that aren't as severe and aren't going to, you know, have you necessarily in the bathroom all day, every day, like Giardia, but are going to be doing some serious damage and that need to be identified and need to be addressed. Right. And then there's the integrity of that gut lining. Like a lot of things can damage that gut lining. And what happens is instead of these like really tight junctions, that are selectively allowing like a nutrient at a time to cross, you can have this like sort of damaged leaky gut where anything can get across, whether it's the properly digested nutrients or improperly digested food or pathogens, waste material. I mean, think about what's in there, you know, (laughs) your poop is already is in there earlier on, right? Like it's, (laughs) you don't want elements. Some of those toxic elements, it's really important that the body be able to 
ensure that doesn't get into the bloodstream. So anything that's getting into the bloodstream that shouldn't be getting in there, it's a necessary and appropriate response for your immune system to get involved, to clean up and protect you from that. And so all of these pieces and, you know, and then, then we'd add in like, what are you actually eating? So all of these pieces really need to be addressed and need to be performing optimally and healed. And so that we're not over engaging the immune system and creating the environment where it's sort of this slippery slope and can end up in autoimmune disease. It doesn't, of course, end up with autoimmune for everybody, but it's really interesting how, I mean, even, I mean, it just feels like every day there's, there's these disease processes. And I, you know, I use the example of eczema, but I remember when I was like, oh my gosh, that was autoimmune. Like I had autoimmune processes going on in my body, you know, as an early teen, I had no idea. I think that we're going to be seeing more and more the uh, understanding the underlying mechanisms to a lot of things that we haven't recognized as autoimmune as actually being a part of this process. So really, you know, we're saying you need to heal your gut and identify and remove inflammatory foods for autoimmune, but really you need to do that as step one for anything. Completely agree with that with that sediment. It doesn't matter what condition you've got going on. We've got to remove the foods that are adding fuel to that fire and repair the gut. So if you were to give like three general recommendations, I know that's kind of a loaded, loaded question because, you know, everybody's gut problems, even if they look like the same diagnosis code can be completely different. What are three things that people could do right now that could improve their gut health? Well, so the absolute most important thing I get asked, you know, what is the, if you could only do one thing in your diet, what would you change? So here's the most important thing, the absolute, like if you do nothing else, and is it going to get you hundred percent of the way there just on its own? Probably not, but it's essential. And I make in every single client I work with, this is like foundation. This is like, you got to be doing this, which is to get rid of gluten. And the reason for that is that, I mean, there's, we could spend this entire conversation just talking about the different ways that gluten and all the associated compounds you find in grains like wheat are damaging to our system. But just just in this one piece of the puzzle where as the body is digesting gluten, it releases a compound called zonulin. And zonulin does this, right? It just causes that like instant gut permeability, even in somebody who is totally healthy. It's just what it does. So for that one reason alone, let alone all the other reasons why gluten is problematic, I always insist that we remove gluten as part of that digestive healing process because continuing to consume it is just, it's simply working to cross purposes with all of the healing that we're trying to do. So that is absolutely step one. Now, if if you've already done that, and that's a big step, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to downplay the fact that that is not a small thing. Um, Now I will say that we're having this conversation here in 2022. I don't know how long you've been doing this work. I've been doing this work now for like 14, 15 years. And this conversation, even 10 years ago, even five years ago, was a totally different conversation because the options were both disgusting and just chemically filled horrible things. You know, so now there's actually really clean, decent options that actually taste really good for most things, not everything, but most things that are gluten free. So that's. So it's not, it sounds horrible and, um, but it's, but it is, it's doable now. So that's step one. Now, step two would be to then take that a little bit further and actually pull out the top, the heavy hitters, right? Not just the gluten, but then doing some kind of an elimination diet. You know, the things that I like to pull out in that are all grains, 
dairy, soy. Now, dairy, I say dairy with the exception of butter from pasture-raised cows and ghee from pasture-raised cows. Most people tolerate that. And kind of depending, sometimes I let people keep the, the butter in, sometimes they don't, just sort of depending on the severity of their symptoms and what's going on. But sort of a, you know, if we're just talking basics, so pulling out the grains, the dairy, soy, for sure. Soy is just so problematic for so many reasons. And, you know, many of my clients like myself have um, thyroid um, issues with that Hashimoto's and soy and the thyroid is just not a dance you want to try to engage in. So pulling out the soy and definitely pulling out any kind of refined foods, particularly refined sugars and rancid oils. So vegetable oils, that's a, that's a big one. So I'm kind of giving like a whole bunch of things in one step. I'm sneaking it in, calling it an elimination diet, but these are the things that we really need to pay attention to. And I think the oils, you know, that's something that, that not a lot of people pay attention to. I think mostly people are now comfortable with the idea that we can eat fat and it's not going to kill us. But when it comes to the quality of the fats that we're eating, that is just a conversation that we're not having nearly enough of. And it's, it's so critically important. You know, I, we talked at the beginning about the fact that so many of the foods we're eating are really pro-inflammatory. One of the biggest places that sneaks into our diet is these vegetable oils, right? These like omega-6 rich, like the sunflower oil, the safflower oil, soy oil, canola oil, and they are rampant. <laughs> like go to the whole foods bar, right? The like hot bar or whatever, and try to find something in there. And so those oils are just loaded with omega-6s that are much more pro-inflammatory. Plus they are not designed to be used at high temperatures. They actually go rancid. So the chemical processes that they have gone through to be bleached and deodorized and all the stuff so that we don't smell how bad they would actually smell if we um, if they hadn't gone through all of that, it's just, they're really, it sounds so nice, right? Sunflower oil, like it sounds very innocent, but really it's something that you want to pull out of the diet and look for things that are make, using either avocado oil or coconut oil or olive oil. I mean, the, the, the oils that you would have in your cupboards. And if you do have a cupboard there, you've got like plastic bottles with vegetable oils in it. There's a lot of things that I'll be like, ah, oh, just eat it up. And, and then when you're done, replace it. Those are the ones I say, no, go home, throw it out right now. <laughs> Like, not worth it. Pulling and doing kind of an elimination diet, pulling out these heavy hitters and seeing how your system resets. And so the flip side of that is like, what are you then eating? You know, loads of good veggies. You're eating um, some really good, clean animal protein. Don't be afraid of animal protein. It's really, really important for you. Even, you know, even red meats and things like just making sure that you're sourcing it well. Good, clean fats. And it's kind of amazing how satiating that kind of a diet can be without all of these, you know, a lot of the foods that I just listed that we pulled out are things that are like, they're very immediately gratifying, but they trigger this, this loop of cravings. You know, a lot of these processed foods are intentionally chemically engineered to trigger those cravings, but even something just like eating a big bowl of pasta, it's going to taste great. You're going to be hungry a couple hours later and craving more carbs because it's not actually giving your body the core nutrients that you, you really need. So that would be, I guess, kind of step two slash step three. And I think that the third, the third thing that I would say, just to kind of squeeze in an extra thing here, is to really have a different relationship to any kind of symptoms that are showing up in your body. You know, are they're annoying. I get it. Like they're not comfortable. We don't want to feel them. And so the tendency is to just override them. Have a headache, take a take ibuprofen or 
you know, have a stomach ache, eat some Tums or something like that, right? Like it's this just like, oh, here's a symptom. I just need to get rid of it so I can get on with my day. But symptoms are our bodies talking to us, you know? And if they're speaking to us, we can keep kind of shutting them up, but they're just going to get louder. And so learning that the body doesn't ever do anything, like it's not out to get you, right? I mean, that sounds, we're talking about autoimmunity where our body's attacking itself. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, but there's a really deep innate wisdom in our body's natural way of being is to heal and to thrive. And if it's not, then there's something getting in the way of that. And it's about identifying those blocking factors and helping the body to restore balance. And when you've done that, it's amazing what kind of healing you can have. But a really important step on that journey is to start listening to what your body is asking you for. You know, I studied years ago at the very beginning of my career, I did a bit of work with Mark David, you know, and he talks about how the cure is the disease. And I remember when he first said that, and I was like, I was so triggered. <laughs> how dare you? You know, but it, truly, it's, it's, the, it's really the case where I've never now in these, all these years of practice, I've never seen somebody where what the disease or the ill health is asking of them is not exactly what they need. Not just physically, often emotionally, often mentally, you know, like if you're, if you're really tired, you know, you need to sleep. Right. Like there's, there's a piece where it, and I'm I'm making it sound simple, but we do tend to just like, I'm tired. So I'm going to drink three more cups of coffee and I'm going to push through and I'm going to override and I'm going to override. I'm going to override. And Hey, I am so guilty of this. So I'm not sitting here on some like preachy thing saying like, Oh, all you people who aren't listening to your symptoms. Like I'm as guilty of this as anyone, because I don't want to have the headache. I don't want to be tired, but that fatigue, that headache, that digestive symptom, whatever it is, is giving you some really, really important feedback and learning to really embrace that feedback, listen to it well, and then learn how to respond to it is a really, really essential skill in terms of really achieving optimal health. And it's something that you can start doing yourself. And it's something that if you're working with a good practitioner, they're going to help you do that as well. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, our Western medicine model of just, you know, matter whatever, it, whatever it is, whatever symptoms showing up, we're going to do whatever we can to suppress it. When the body innately is intelligent enough to go, whatever I am doing today, whether it's increasing your cholesterol or increasing your immune reactivity, I'm trying to fix and repair something I see right now is by far more concerning than what the long-term effects of my response will be, you know? And so people think I need to suppress things rather than step into it and say, what is my body really trying to tell me at this point? So you like to really work with women trying to work through fertility issues and thyroid problems. So talk a little bit about food sensitivities, thyroid, and particularly the relationship with fertility. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of my clients come to me with Hashimoto's, so autoimmune thyroid. And what's typically happening is because the immune system is attacking their thyroid, they've got very suppressed thyroid hormone production. And oftentimes, even, you know, the medical solution to this is to supplement with exogenous hormones, which, you know, is appropriate and can make sense. But again, it's not getting to the root of the problem. And sometimes it makes them feel better, but sometimes they still feel absolutely miserable. Often this can really impact their ability to conceive. Because if we are hypothyroid, that has a direct impact on our reproductive hormones. So it can, and it can 
dramatically decrease the production of estrogen. It can actually prohib- uh, prevent ovulation. It really, like there's some, you know, it, it has impacts in men as well, but for the women in particular, you know, it, it great, significantly greater chance of miscarriage. And also, you know, making sh- sure that it, once you get pregnant, that there's sufficient thyroid hormone, both for yourself and for the infant, really, really important in terms of fetal neuro- neurological development. So, you know, optimizing thyroid performance is really, really essential for anyone who is trying to conceive. And particularly if they are not, you know, they've been prescribed the exogenous hormones and they're still not feeling any better and they're still not getting any results. That's when it's really appropriate. I think it's always appropriate to look under the hood and do deeper digging. But in those moments, for sure, that can be a really key piece of resolving the fertility puzzle. And so, you know, when, when clients come to me, you know, with this Hashimoto's diagnosis, trying to conceive, and I say, let's start by healing your gut. There's definitely a moment of like, but why? Now, some, some women, um, well, a lot of people with, with Hashimoto's, one of the things it does um, with hypothyroid situation, it can have significant impact on the digestion. So sometimes I would say often, but not always, there's um, a lot of digestive symptoms present. And this can make a lot of sense because um, being hypothyroid will dramatically slow down one's transport time. So it can get into that like really sort of constipated, uncomfortable, bloating kind of situation. And oftentimes they are aware that certain foods just make them feel awful. Sometimes not, but sometimes they are. But regardless, regardless, we need to start with healing the gut for all of the reasons that we've talked about here today. You know, I think something about autoimmune, we haven't really talked about this piece, but, you know, the different types of autoimmune disease, they're only different because of the target of the immune attack, right? So the immune is attacking the thyroid, most often the TPO enzyme, which is part of what helps the body to actually create thyroid hormones. So, um, so that's what Hashimoto says, is the body... Is the body's immune system targeting the thyroid and other types of autoimmune are just targeting different body systems, body tissues. But the root dysfunction, we always still need to look at what it's actually an immune issue. It's not a thyroid issue. It's an immune issue. It's the, the immune system is attacking the thyroid. So providing those missing thyroid hormones is one piece of the puzzle, but we really need to look deeper at why the immune system is attacking the thyroid to begin with. And so digestive healing is essential. I talked about gluten. I mean, perhaps the only other autoimmune process where it is more important than with Hashi's to get rid of gluten. And I think it's, I think it's critical for everybody, definitely with autoimmune, definitely with Hashi's. And then of course, celiac is the one where it's just like an absolute non-negotiable. You have to take that out. With the thyroid, the gluten peptide chain actually is very, very similar to thyroid peptide chain. So that's just like the building blocks of the actual thyroid tissue. And so it's very easy. This is where this is when we start getting into things like molecular mimicry and stuff. But basically, you know, these things look really, really similar to the immune system. And that can be one of the many reasons for the misfiring. And so, so yeah, so for people with Hashimoto's, definitely pulling out gluten as a permanent, like this is not coming back in. This is a lifetime goodbye. And just to that point too, you know, some people like to be sort of low gluten. There isn't such a thing as a low gluten diet. You're gluten free or you're not. And it's annoying. I get it because it's, it hides in all sorts of things, but it's like really, really important to be disciplined about it and, and be like, well, 
I'm going to have one treat a month. Like that really, that's, that will set you back dramatically. Yeah. When you're thinking about Hashimoto's and you're thinking about fertility, you're thinking, well, this is about hormones. It has nothing to do with my gut, but actually it has everything to do with your gut. Because if your gut, if anything is going awry, then that's engaging the immune system, which is then one of the root causes that it's making some of these misfiring decisions and attacking the thyroid. And because of the lack of thyroid hormone, this is now impacting your body's ability to conceive and then to maintain a healthy pregnancy. So it's like sort of just stepping back, 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 getting to that root piece. And even as you said, once you're in the digestive system, chicken and egg, is it because of microbiome imbalances um, that are, you know, like, what is it that was the initiating factor? And sometimes, you know, I feel like we can kind of make ourselves a little bit insane trying to get to the root of the root of the root of the root. And, you know, definitely, you know, that, that conversation is it the foods, is it the gut, you know, my approach at least is let's just assume it's all of it. And let's look at actually all those aspects. So, you know, I think if there's sort of five different pieces when we're thinking about digestive health, there's the functional piece, like how well is it performing? There's the dysbiosis. So like, what's the microbiome balance? And there's, are there any kind of pathogens we need to eradicate? And do we need to heal and seal the gut? And, um, and then the last piece would be, let's identify and remove any kind of inflammatory foods while we're healing these pieces. And so gut testing can be really helpful in understanding the specifics in there, because, you know, how you deal with an H. pylori infection is very different from how you deal with a parasite, which is different, again, from how you deal with a fungal overgrowth. You know, are there functional issues? Probably, but which ones? I think the one thing that we do always is address leaky gut because it's sort of the assumption that there's going to be some kind of damage to that really delicate gut lining, no matter where the dysfunction is elsewhere as well. But really addressing those key things. I mean, the number of times that I have been able to help a client restore balance, put their autoimmune into remission, get and maintain a pregnancy just by doing that, you know, we haven't had to actually look in other places yet. It's, I'm not going to give you a full number because I'm just, it's just, I'd be pulling it completely out of my head, but it's definitely the majority of clients who just by addressing this, it doesn't, it's not always that way, but often just by addressing the gut, we're actually able to bring their Hashis into remission. We're able to support a really healthy pregnancy. And that, that says a lot right there, just that clinical experience. For me, definitely, you know, fixing the gut getting food sensitivities out, you know, restoring balance to the microbiome, heal and seal for sure. You know, and I think there's a perception too that like, I'm going to heal my leaky gut and it won't be leaky anymore. And I'm like, well, I hate to break it to you, but that Saturday night gluten-free hamburger that you're having with your vegan cheese or whatever is still probably combined enough with enough fats, with enough other things that you're going to have leaky gut for four to five hours afterwards. At least that's what the research show. So this is a constant sort of awareness that we can have when everything's healed and everything's back. I might be able to deviate and maybe eat a food that was once more pro-inflammatory, but, but this is an ongoing process. It's not like I put up the Berlin wall and it's now perfect and there's nothing ever going to go through it. It's like there's this constant sort of need to support the gut. It's not an end all be all one time done. And luckily, you know, the, you know, the digestive tract has a very, it heals very quickly. You know, it's not something that is like, you know, it gets damaged quickly, but it can heal quickly as well. So this isn't something that needs to take years, this aspect of things, you know, it can take just a few weeks to a few months. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. So 
I know that you've got um, something you would like to share with my listeners. So if they want to learn more and maybe take some steps to kind of address some autoimmunity pieces, will you tell them about that? Yeah, for sure. So it's called the first five. And it's the really the first five key steps that you can be doing at home without any kind of practitioner guidance. If you definitely, if you have an autoimmune diagnosis, but really even outside of that, if you have anything going on digestively or just any kind of like chronic, stubborn health thing that isn't working for you, these are five really good steps that you can take before actually going and seeking a you know professional support. And you, you know, sometimes in and of themselves, this this addresses the issue and you don't necessarily need to go any further. Sometimes you will still need to work with a functional practitioner, but you will have done a lot of the foundational work by the time you get there and you'll be able to dive in and do the things that you really can't do without that um, sort of professional oversight and guidance. So it will set you up on your way no matter what. So it's called The First Five. You can find it at eatnakedkitchen.com slash The First Five. Awesome. And we'll have that in the show notes uh, for everybody so they can click there and get it from the Dysfunctional Life podcast show notes. Thank you for coming on and having a really great conversation about autoimmunity, thyroid disorders, food sensitivities in the gut. My favorite, my favorite topic area. <laughs> I know it's so fun to talk about, and there's so much potential here. It's not rocket science. There's so much that we can do um, using really, ultimately, fairly basic tools of you know really strategic dietary changes well thought through supplement protocols and some lifestyle changes. It's profound what these tools can do for your health. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. Well, thank you, Margaret, for coming on This Functional Life. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will catch you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into This Functional Life. You are why I'm here. And I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.